21CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. My name is Andy Vasily, and I sincerely thank you for listening to any episode that you can. One of the major themes that I like to present and discuss on my podcast with the guests that I have on the show is how they have come to understand themselves through the passions they've developed in their lives. More often than not, it is the passions that my guests have developed that have led them to making an extraordinary difference not only in their own professional field, but also in the lives of others. Without question, any high achiever in life has experienced major setbacks and obstacles that have resulted in them having to navigate different paths in order to move forward in a way that continues to deepen their learning and growth. Today's episode is part one of a two-part series devoted to sharing the amazing journey of professional endurance athlete Adam Campbell. It was originally scheduled to be an hour-long podcast, but as I dug more deeply into Adam's journey, there was so much more that I wanted to talk about with him. So we made a decision to record two separate episodes a week apart. Adam is Canadian, but spent the majority of his childhood and teenage years growing up as a third culture kid in Nigeria. It was in Nigeria that he developed a deep love of physical activity and movement, which ultimately led to Adam embarking on a career as a professional endurance athlete. Adam has represented Canada on five different national teams. You'll hear about the different teams he represented and more about this journey later in the episode. Part one of this two-part series really sets the context and the scene for a very honest and open discussion that we have in part two. Adam was almost killed in a serious fall in the Selkirk Mountains in 2016. He was running across Rogers Pass, B.C., doing the Horseshoe Traverse, a course of approximately 14 mountain peaks. Normally, it takes three to five days, but Adam and his two friends, who are also elite mountain runners, were trying to do it in a single day. The near-death experience changed Adam's life in many ways, but ultimately led him to having a much greater appreciation not only for the people in his life who supported him through this ordeal, but he also had tremendous gratitude for being given a second chance in life. In this episode, we discuss the mini-documentary made about his life called In Constant Motion. 
that was about the accident and his recovery and ultimately his return to competitive endurance running. Adam discusses the fact that his physical self is how he always defined himself and how the accident forced him to change this perspective to focus more holistically on who he was as a person. As his life as an athlete was almost taken from him, Adam shares the struggles he experienced during his recovery and what he had to overcome within himself to push forward in his life in the most positive ways possible. We conclude episode one by agreeing to record a part two in order to dig more deeply into Adam's journey and his return to professional endurance running. I think you will really enjoy this discussion, and I sincerely hope you will come back to listen to part two. Everybody, without further ado, part one of this two-part series with the inspiring Adam Campbell. Okay, Adam, hey, thank you very much for your time. Um, I know that you're quite busy, and and, uh, you're in Alberta right now. I'm in Hanover, Germany. Uh, we managed with the time difference to to find some time to record this, so I, I really appreciate your time and energy and for you being on the show. Yeah, no, thanks a lot. I mean, one, technology is incredible. It's amazing you can do that and connect around the world, but uh, no, I really appreciate your interest, and uh, thanks for asking me to share some of my insights and stories. Yeah, and you have, um, as you know, I'm, I'm a physical education and health um, consultant, um, so I taught for many years, so a lot of the audience listening to this, they're physical education and health teachers and coaches and that, who live very active lifestyles. So I think they'll really benefit from hearing your story. So I think um, what I want to jump right into is there is like a mini documentary on your story called In Constant Motion. Yeah, right? correct. Yeah. And, and that was filmed, uh, what, last year or two years ago? Uh, yeah, so it would have been filmed in 2017. Okay. And it was released uh, sort of early 2018, correct? Okay. So yeah. I have a question about that. But before getting into that question, can you just get, uh, kind of give people a glimpse into who you are and, and the work that you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess uh, we, um, I, there's multi, like, like most people, I'm like somewhat multifaceted. I, I hope most people are multifaceted. Yeah. <laughs> I think I make some more interesting people. Uh, so professionally, I'm a lawyer. Uh, I work as an in-house counsel for an engineering firm. But uh, prior to that, I uh, and, and con- continue to be a professional endurance athlete. And most of the sports I do happen in the mountains. Um, I have, I've, I've been a professional athlete for almost 20 plus years now. And uh, the bulk of my sports these days involve running, climbing, skiing, uh, basically just try to move efficiently through beautiful places, uh, or I like to say suffering in beautiful places. Yeah. 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 And you represented, uh, you represented Canada on five national teams. So can you share the five national teams you represented and, yeah. and the skills that you think you developed within yourself to um, be such a valuable member of these squads? Yeah, yeah. Whether or not it was valuable is debatable, I guess. Yeah. But um, no. So the five national teams I've been on, I was on the Canadian national triathlon team, uh, duathlon team, skiing mountaineering team, mountain running team, and uh, long distance mountain running team. Which are, it's a separate event. Um, so the and it's sort of been an evolution. So the way it started out, I I, I grew up in Lagos, Nigeria. Uh, so my parents, oh, wow. my both my parents are Canadian. But I moved to Lagos, Nigeria, and I was nine months old. And um, 
my, my father's been there for almost 40 years now and I lived there until I was 17. Oh, wow. And yeah. Um, and so they moved there in 1979. And so I was there until the mid nineties. So you were an international school kid. I was an international school kid. Yeah. What yeah, school? I went, to a French, I went to a French lycée. Oh, Ecole okay. Française Louis Pasteur. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's so um, cool. and so I, I mean, it benefited greatly from that, uh, from that lifestyle for sure. Um, you know, it was a really, really international uh, background, but I mean, it's a little separate from your, your actual question, but because I grew up in Nigeria, um, uh, when I grew up there, there was no TV. Like we just, we were just outside all the time. And I also think living in the tropics, it makes it a little bit easier for your parents to just kick you outside like the second you get home. And so the, the bulk of my childhood was spent playing outdoors. And I think that's where I really developed a love of movement our house was literally on the beach. And so I, I surfed, I sailed, I, you know, played soccer on the beach and I just, I played a lot. I didn't do much organized sport growing up that didn't come until later in my life, but I was just constantly active. Um, and my parents put me in a, in a lot of different sports. As I said, I, you know, I, I swam a lot. I, uh, you know, ran around the beaches quite a lot and, um, being in, in Nigeria, you know, soccer is definitely, or football, you know, is definitely yeah. a, a really big component of life there. Um, but when I was 17, I went to boarding school in Eastern Canada. My parents are both Canadian and, um, they wanted me to go and get a couple of years of education in Canada prior to going to university. And so when I got to school in Canada, all of a sudden I had all this, uh, these incredible opportunities to join these quite well-organized sports teams. And the school I went to Trinity college school in Port Hope, Ontario, had a very, um, strong background in sports. And I think part of it's just to keep teenagers occupied. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Save you from getting in too much trouble, a little tire of physically. And, uh, but that really appealed to me. And the other thing that the school had was this beautiful campus, this huge campus with like lots of green space, which wasn't something I actually had a lot of access to in Lagos. So all of a sudden I lived on this, uh, this campus with several hundred acres and so I, I really enjoyed running around the trails there or mountain biking or cross country skiing. And, um, but so I did that for a couple of years and I played a number of sports at the school, but then I, um, I, I, and I actually got really into, to whitewater canoeing and kayaking, uh, while there as well as, as I said, cross country skiing. And I went and did an outward bound program. Um, and so I did a 30 day canoe trip. And learn some leadership skills through that and really, really just learn this deep love of outdoors. Uh, and, and growing up, for whatever reason, I was always attracted to, to stories about adventurers. So I read stories about climbers and um, Arctic explorers. And so these people pushing themselves and challenging themselves in natural environments and pitting themselves against it and you know, normally getting pretty shut down and occasionally surviving, but also, you know, a lot of the times those stories are with people perishing in those situations. And there's just something about that sense of adventure that I really, really enjoyed and the uncertainty of outcome. And do, um, do you think, um, you know, looking, cause that's kind of a, I don't want to say that was a harsh environment you grew up, but it was very different than the average Canadian child. Um, yeah, sure. But do you think that, um, and it sounds like you were, cause that was my, my question about inconstant motion, which I'll have you talk about in a few minutes, is you describe yourself in the documentary in the first couple minutes as um, your physical self is how you have always defined yourself. So it makes sense now that um, you growing up in that environment and being connected to nature and having access to nature such as that really did shape you in your early years. Would you agree with that statement? 
Oh, you know, absolutely. And I, and I think part of it also just, you know, when I was young, I've, I've um, even though I'm, I'm not like a physically big person, I've always been quite good at sports. Um, and so I, and I think that little recognition from when you're young, uh, you know, that definitely played into it. But from a really young age, I just loved using my body. Uh, when I was about eight or so, I my, my parents got like a, my dad had this like chin up bar. And so I would just do as many chin ups as I could, or I just enjoyed doing a lot of push ups and like, it was just, it was a little bit strange. I, I realized that, but I just always enjoyed seeing what I could do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I come from quite a physical family as well. And so I think I, you know, there was a lot of uh, modeling going on as well. You know, my dad would come home and play tennis and, or swim a mile every day or, and do whatever little uh, at home gym workout he would do. And, so I think the importance of using your body was sort of ingrained in me in a young age. And yeah, I, I just liked that feeling of moving. It was sort of, I sort of had two states. It was either reading a book or I was outside playing. Yeah. Uh, and I'm also, I'm naturally a little bit introverted. And so I think getting drawn towards endurance sports was a little bit natural as well, because I yeah. enjoy the conversations I would have with myself. And, uh, but I, and I do, but I, you know, I won't describe the fact that some of it came from, me getting having some early recognition success you know like you're when you're playing soccer you know you just you knew i wasn't necessarily the quickest or strongest but i was the guy who could just sort of run all day and mm-hmm. move around the field a little bit I re, and i just also really enjoyed it any chance to play i would i would take so i'd be outside all day yeah um that's yeah, what but, when sorry i just wanted to say I, something just to, to add to that point is that you know the work that i'm doing in physical education is all about um working with schools and PE departments to get them to uh, create more connections to community and their program, which yeah. means you have to throw old programs, traditional PE programs out the window, and mm-hmm. you have to build and construct these programs that allow students to take action on what they're learning in PE and to be active in the community. So if it's cycling, we do a lot of cycling and skateboarding in, in Saudi Arabia at my school, because okay. we have a skate park and a lot of cycling paths. So redesigning physical education programs to allow kids to connect to movement um, outside of school in ways that will uh, deepen the learning that they are experiencing in PE. So it's about making these connections on an ongoing basis. So it sounds like you were constantly surrounded by these connections and that your parents really supported you in sending you to Trinity College gave you more opportunity to explore movement and ultimately find what might be considered your life purpose. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the biggest thing for me um, was actually that really long period of unstructured physical activity and play. So even though, you know, we would play in the, like, you know, you, you'd play a soccer match. I didn't train for soccer. I didn't train you know, it was sort of where my passions would go. So, I, you know, there was a time when I was really obsessed with tennis. And so my parents would just let me go and play tennis obsessively. But then I would go sailing on the weekends. And so I think just having a diversity of sports and options really um, gave me a, a really strong physical literacy. And just a, a joy and an opportunity to try lots of things. And um, I was actually listening to a very interesting podcast yesterday by Steve Magnus. Who's a he's a very well known run coach and he has a book called The Passion Paradox. Okay. Yeah, and it's really interesting. It's it's about how you foster passion. Um, and one of the things they get into in it is um, talks a lot about just having the opportunity to just constantly try lots of things, you know. And from there, 
you know, you build passion slowly and you, you learn things like passion isn't something that just, you don't just get it automatically. It's something that you have to foster and develop over time. And by trying lots of things, always you sort of, it, to me, it's just a form of curiosity really. For sure. And, yeah, that, and, and think, that's where, and, that's what I'm talking about with the PE programs is planting the seeds for opportunity and exploration to ultimately allow students to find an entry point to something that they might end up being really passionate about. And that can really change their life, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And I, and I also think that it changes over time as well. You know, as a, as a child evolves, they hopefully they're evolving as a person through the same time. So their interests might change as well. And so I think just constantly being exposed to new things allows that opportunity to happen. And you, and you, things aren't static. So you've, you know, you learn from each of those physical experiences, which I think was the question you originally asked me about how being on the five national teams, like what I learned through each one of them. And yeah. so that's sort of where I was, I was building to. Um, so I, the first national team I was on was the, the junior national triathlon team. And it sort of, it came about entirely by uh, dumb luck, really. I, I jumped into a triathlon and it happened to be the Junior Canadian Triathlon Championships. And I hadn't been training for it. I, I did grow up as a swimmer. I grew up as a runner. And I, it was, um, you know, I, I biked a little bit, but not a lot. But I jumped in the Junior National Triathlon Championships. And I happened to qualify for the Junior National Team. My results, oh. I finished fifth at it, um, which allowed me to qualify for the Junior National Team. And the World Championships were in Montreal that year. And I was, um, I, as I said, I'd just come back from a 30-day canoe trip without were bound. So I, like I was active, but I wasn't like training for a triathlon yeah. or anything. Um, but that really changed my entire life quite significantly, jumping in that one race. Um, how because, did you, how did you think, it, sorry to interrupt, but going into that race, obviously something within yourself was um, drawn to wanting to go in the race, first of all. But then secondly, how did you feel? Were you thinking outcome? Were you thinking, let's just do this for the experience? Like, how did that play out in your head as you entered the race? Yeah. So, I mean, to, I guess to take a, a, a second, a quick step back, I, at the, at school, as I said, I was doing a lot of sports, but I would, I, I won the, the school cross country running race and I was on the, the school, um, uh, Nordic ski team. So I'd already had a little bit of an endurance background there. And I was on the school swim team as well. Um, but, and I was still playing soccer and rugby and some other sports, but so I did have this endurance sports base and I think I was, I don't know if I would say I was training, but I was just, I was just curious. Like I, I, I liked racing. I, well, I liked, I, I wanted to just go as hard as I could at the race. And previously I'd, I'd done well at races when that had happened and it was, it was always just sort of go as hard as you can. <laughs> the outcome sort of happens from that. Um, I think, you know, as a 17-year-old or, yeah, I think it was 17 at the time. Um, you just, you go as hard as you can. You just, you race everybody. And I, I don't know if it was necessarily like, you know, winning was the goal. It was just, it was my first triathlon. It was just see how hard you can go. And what, I ended up having a good outcome Were from you it. surprised with the way you finished or was like, okay, yes, that's what I thought or... So that's actually a really uh, interesting question. Um, I, I've always been quite self-critical. And so even though I was probably, I was very, it was, I thought it was incredibly cool to have made the national team. I, I also analyzed everything I didn't do right in the race. Like I didn't have a great swim. I didn't have a great bike. And I was like, oh, well, if I trained harder or if I'd actually like tried for this, maybe I could do really well at this sport. Um, and so I, I ended up getting a coach from there because I, I realized I needed some guidance as to what to do. 
And I was living in Kingston because I was going to go to Queens University. Yeah. And I happened to join – Kingston just happened to be a bit of a triathlon hub in Canada. And so I, um, I ended up uh, connecting with a coach there who helped train me for the world championships that year. And at the Worlds, I didn't – I mean, you know, I'd been training for like three months. And so I didn't – you know, it wasn't like <laughs> – I didn't win the world championships or anything. I was maybe yeah. one of the last guys to finish. But I still qualified for the national team. I got to compete at world champs in, in Canada, which was unbelievably That's cool. That's amazing, yeah. Yeah, and then that just opened up a, a series of opportunities for me because um, – so that was in 1999. And the – at the same race, this Canadian Simon Whitfield yeah, uh, qualified awesome. for the Olympics, yeah. and he happened to be from Kingston. And then in 2000, so a few months later, he actually won the Olympic gold medal, mm-hmm. uh, which was inspiring to Canada. And he became a you know he's a he's a Canadian icon of sport. Yeah. Just the fashion that he won was incredible. It was just it was it was an amazing result. But he's from Kingston, and so he actually came to Kingston, and I got to train with him that year. Which was unbelievably Probably cool. Probably ele- elevated your game, I would say. Well, it was actually it was he definitely elevated my game. But um, so I got to train with the Olympic gold medalist within my first year of doing the sport, and so this opportunity presented itself, and I took it. And I was out doing a running workout with him, and after the workout, he's like, "Hey, you're pretty good at this. Like, you're, you're pretty good at triathlon. You haven't been training very. Like, there's a lot you can you can learn still." But we have this national training center in Victoria, which is on the other side of the country in Canada. You should come and uh, train with us. And uh, as a you know, as an eighteen year old at this point, I thought that was a pretty good idea. Okay. And so I dropped out of university and flew across the country and literally landed in Victoria. So this opportunity came and I, I took it. And I, like without a, without exaggerating, I landed at the airport in Victoria and, and called him from the payphone. And I was like, hey, I'm here. And he's like, what do you mean you're here? I was like, well, I'm at the airport in Victoria. I said to come train with you. <laughs> so I ended up living with him for the next five years. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's pretty cool. That's so and so cool. I got to learn from some of the best athletes in the world. Um, and, I, and I think that some of that, though, came down from my background. And it just sounded more interesting than being in university at the time as well. Uh, to go and train with this national team program, and my parents weren't incre- weren't too psyched at me uh, dropping out of school to go try to run around and earn a living in a speedo for a few mm-hmm. years. But uh, but it was all they also recognized it as an amazing life opportunity. Um, and I you know I kept doing a few courses remotely to sort of just to keep them happy enough. And I and to be fair, I, I leaned on them quite heavily for financial support through a few of those years until I was able to start getting winning some prize money or races and things. But I, I learned how to be a professional athlete. I learned how to really apply myself from the athletes there because we had Simon Whitfield, the Olympic gold medalist. We had Peter Reed and Lori Bowden, who both won Ironman Hawaii. We had Greg Bennett, who's the world number one ranked triathlete at the time, all training in this hub. And they attracted all the best triathletes from Canada there as well. And so it was a really competitive environment, but you really learned how to be a professional athlete. And I learned. Uh, what it meant to apply yourself to something. That was the first time where I'd ever really done a structured training program. And, you know, there was, there's positives and negatives about that. Um, Some of it didn't work with me so well, but uh, I I do think that my, my background growing up in, in Nigeria and having a life of travel and not necessarily having like a strong connection to one place, that whole third world kid syndrome thing. um, 
I, I think it allowed me to, to just to take this opportunity and just move across the country uh, because an opportunity presented itself. To take the risk yeah. to do it, right? I took the risk. And really, yeah. at the age of 18, there's not a huge risk in doing those things. Yeah. Uh, and ultimately, it's opened up an amazing number of doors for me. It's given me great friendships and lifelong connections. And it, um, as I said, it really taught me how to, to apply myself and be a professional athlete for a number of years, which has um, served me really well from there. And, and you talk about, you know, when you were 18, being very self-critical. Uh, some people would say that that's a limitation, but it sounds like it might be a strength for you being self-critical and really analyzing performance and expecting more of yourself. Um, can you speak a little bit um, about that idea of being self-critical and the role it played in your um, career? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I, I think initially it probably was more negative than positive. It was a little bit self-destructive at times uh, because I, I had a hard time celebrating success and celebrating victory, which is something actually I think you need to do as well. But it did. Uh, my ability to analyze myself and then uh, break down what I need to do to improve uh, was something that I, I already had a little bit in me, but it's something that I really learned from Simon and those other athletes as well. Yeah. Uh, the one thing that I, I have been good at doing is when I would have a setback, which is inevitable in sport, is uh, not dwelling on the setback. So you learn what caused the setback, but then just moving on right away. Learning, yeah, so yeah, I think, from failure. Yeah, from failure. But I and I also think it's the same thing with success as well. Yeah. You know, you celebrate the success, but then you move on. And the next day you get up and you go train again. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the same thing that all those other athletes did. What was the first thing that Simon did after winning a medal? You know, you, you celebrate that night, but the next one he went up and went for a run. Yeah. And that's just what like professional athletes do. It's just it's part of who you are. It's just it's a there's an overall lifestyle with it. Yeah, and and a mindset yeah. for sure. And I guess like it jumping into in constant motion, I guess the the best direction to go right now is to to frame up more of your past. Um, yeah. I think it's time for the listeners to really know the story that changed your life forever. And I'm hoping that you can share what happened in your in your life of movement when, when yeah. your life of movement came to an abrupt halt on August 30th, 2016, and to describe in detail what happened uh, in, in that um, moment and yeah. your, your initial weeks afterwards. Okay. Yeah, for sure. So I, um, so from, uh, I, I competed in triathlon for a number of years and then I, I tried qualifying for the 2008 Olympics when I didn't qualify for the Olympics. I, uh, I actually, I, I took up uh, trail running and mountain running. I, I decided to retire from triathlon by the time I, I went to law school, but I, I wanted to keep, keep training and from there i uh, i got into mountain running and ultra running which is any distance longer than a marathon so i started running 50 kilometer races and 50 mile races and 100 mile races and mostly in the mountains and um off off road because i was just i've always really been drawn to moving in nature and i did that for a number of years and then i sort of got a little bit uh, tired of racing and i started getting more into mountaineering and climbing so less away from structured training specifically and more towards using my fitness in bigger mountains. And so I developed more technical capabilities. Um, and um, I found it, it quite liberating because all of a sudden you weren't confined to a trail or to a race course. You could go and start drawing your own lines. I started looking for like natural logical progressions in the mountains or trying to run up mountains faster than anybody's ever done it before or linking up number of peaks um, things that people hadn't done before. So taking my fitness 
and my new technical skills and combining the two into this sort of hybrid fast mountaineering sport. What role did risk play in that? Were you seeking more and more risk and challenge or was it just a natural progression? So I, I don't think I was necessarily seeking risk, um, but risk was just, was a was a part of it. And I think as my technical competence went up, I was able to put myself in riskier situations. But I don't think I was ever like you know you can. I, I wasn't I wasn't looking to hurt myself or anything. If yeah. that's what, if that's the question, no, it it wasn't like a self harm thing. It was more it was just as the the more interesting terrain to me was the more technically challenging terrain. Yeah which increased the risk level. Yeah. But it so also that, but, increased your skill competence to be able to handle it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that led me to, um, to try this route in uh, an area called Rogers Pass, British Columbia, which is it's sort of the, it's one of the Canadian national parks. It's incredibly beautiful. And it's where mountaineering developed in Canada. It's the birthplace of mountaineering in Canada. And there's this loop called the the Horseshoe Traverse, which is it's a link up of 14 peaks, and it takes most very skilled people um, three to five days to do it. And by this point, I you know I'd sort of um, I'd had some good international success at big mountain races, and so I was regarded as one of the better mountain runners um, and ultra trail runners in the world at the time. And um, this route, though, as I say, it's not a trail running route. It's a, it's a mountaineering route. Like there's quite difficult. You're, you're traversing glaciers and ridges. You're you're above trail the entire time, and it's big loose blocks. And um, so, me and a couple of friends who are two, also two of the best uh, mountain runners in the world uh, decided to try to do this loop in a, in a day. Um, the previous fastest time was about three and a half days, but nobody'd ever taken an hour approach to mountains. So like really light and fast and moving efficiently through this terrain. And they're incredibly competent athletes and we, we each brought our own skill set to it. And so we, um, we set out early in the morning and, you know, made our way across the first four peaks quite quickly. Um, and all of a sudden we came to this thing called the, the Saltzer tower, which, doesn't even really qualify as a peak on the route. It's just sort of like a big rock buttress before you get to another one of the, the towers. And uh, we were maybe 80, 80 meters up, so about 200 feet up this, this rock buttress. And my, my partners, Nick and Dakota, were just in front of me. And I was following the same route as them up. And um, just to qualify, this is hands and feet, like actual climbing, but we weren't roped up through this section because it, it wasn't that difficult. Um, but all of a sudden I felt this this rock pull out on me. And next thing I knew I was falling and ended up falling about 80 meters down the side of the mountain. Um, and I, uh, I, one, the second I felt the rock move, I, I, I knew instantly that I was in a lot of trouble. Um, because was, I was conscious through all of this. And so it was, a, as I say, it was a series, sort of like a, a series of ledges and I was tumbling down these ledges and, um, I get this really vivid image of the, the mountains behind me flipped upside down. And I, and I remember thinking quite clearly that it was really strange. That, that was the last thing I was ever going to see. Cause I was, I was quite convinced I was, I was, I was dead because yeah. I, I knew how far I was falling. Um, but all of a sudden, I uh, so I was tumbling, but all of a sudden I realized I wasn't falling anymore. And I looked down and I, I just saw there's this pool of blood underneath me. And um, I pushed myself up and rolled myself onto my back. 
And uh, I, I instantly knew at that moment that that, that was a really bad idea yeah. <laughs> um, because uh, I wasn't sure what kind of damage I'd done to myself. Um, and so I sat there doing a bit of a self-assessment. I, you know, I, I knew that my ankle was in a really bad state. I knew my hip was really sore. I knew my back was really sore, and I, I knew that there was blood all around me. Uh, but fortunately, you know, if you're going to have a, an accident in the mountain, make sure you have two of the fastest mountain runners mm-hmm. in the world with you, uh, because they were able to run down to me quite quickly. Um, and as I said, they're, you know, uh, one of them's a mountain guide. And he was able to to do an assessment. And they were able to call for for help right away, and uh, it, it turned out I'd, I'd broken my my back, so I broke my T eight to T eleven vertebra. I, I broke the the top of my hip bone. It's called the iliac crest. Um, so the top of my hip bone had sheared right off, and my ankle had separated from my body. And I had deep lacerations across my body. Uh, just to give an example, I had stitches between every single knuckle on my arm. Oh, wow. Fortunately, I was wearing fortunately I was wearing a helmet. And I did have a pack on me, and I was carrying the rope um, that we were going to use to repel a few sections later on to abseil. And that protected my spine from further damage. But any area that was exposed was, was cut up by the, by the rock. Um, and, yeah, I mean, that, uh, you know, obviously that changed things quite dramatically for me because the one thing that was actually, you know, thinking about it, is, it, was, it was really interesting. Um, you know, as we started talking about how, my life has been defined by motion. And as I say, you know, I've been a professional athlete. It's how I'm known to most people is as a physical person. Um, but upon falling, the, the first thing that I knew that I needed to not do was not move. Mm. And not moving was literally what was going to save my life in that moment because of how bad the blood loss was. Yeah. And I instantly knew that I needed to stay calm and not panic, which... Um, That's huge. It, yeah, it's quite. It's quite a, yeah, but it's also quite a profound moment to realize yeah. that not you know I've said that you know if you're not moving you're not alive and I've always thought that yeah. but in that one moment not moving meant I was going to be alive yeah so it's yeah it's quite quite wild pretty intense and when you you know and in your um, talk uh, talk that I heard you give your your uh, climbing partner scaled the the hill really quickly and was able to get a cell phone connection. And there happened to be a, a rescue training operation going on. So lots of little karma, positive karma things, it sounds, took place to get you the help you needed as soon as possible. And can you describe in detail... Um, what happened in your initial weeks after the accidents, uh, after the accident and the first things, uh, I guess you began to learn about yourself in the hospital. Yeah, no, it's interesting. You, you say the karma thing because the other, um, I'll, I'll answer your question in a second, but, um, because it was very true. I mean, due to nothing I did, I survived the fall for one. It's just, you know, there was, there was a lot of luck there. Um, and, you know, some people say I was lucky, unlucky, but, you know, in thinking about it, I was also, you know, I'd put myself in a dangerous situation, in a risky situation. And I knew, even though the actual, the risk factor of that happening was quite low, the consequences were really high, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, it, it was low based on my, my competence. Like, it shouldn't be an area um, where I fell. It's yeah. just you know, this rock fell, but I mean, that was also my fault because I was rushing and I didn't check it. So there's things I did that contributed to it, which yeah. uh, were quite, uh, that's allowed me to get back in the mountains is recognizing what I did that caused the accident as well. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's, um, 
the, the days in the hospital were, were, were wild because um, upon getting there, so I was airlifted out. Um, fortunately, we have an incredible search and rescue system in Canada. Um, so these these professionals were able to, to come in and pull me out of there because if they had to hike me out, I would have died because I was losing so much blood. Yeah. Um, so they, they long-lined somebody in under the helicopter and then they they dropped me off um, at this uh, this visitor center where there was an air ambulance waiting for me, and I was flown to to Kamloops General Hospital, which is three and a half hour drive away. So it's about a, a two hundred kilometer drive or two hundred fifty kilometer drive away, uh, where I was wheeled into surgery and I was in surgery for almost eight hours. Um, I don't remember a lot from that time because they you know was, was put on quite a, quite a lot of um, drugs and also just I was going in under shock. Mm. But upon waking from from that, um, I was I, one I was you know I was, I was relieved to be alive. Yeah, but so you know, I mean grateful. the first thing I did was wiggle my toes just yeah. to be like am I paralyzed? Um, you know, and my t- toes were able to move. And fortunately, um, the injuries I had. Uh, meant that I was going to be able to move again, um, but I knew also knew it was going to be incredibly painful. And uh, yes, I mean that was one of the first things I asked the doctors was, you know, what am I going to be able to do again? Like, well, we don't really know, but you know, we think you're going to be able to make a full recovery. And I was a little bit confused as to what that meant because, you know, does a full recovery mean I'll be able to, you know, does it does he know what it means to me? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <That> was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, I remember uh, one of the first things that happened was within a day of the accident, the the, the physiotherapist who um, who actually knew of me as an athlete came to my room and uh, said, you know, we're going to have to work on your endurance because uh, mm-hmm. they want they want to get you up and moving as as quickly as possible. Uh, we're going to have to work on your endurance so you can go to the bathroom. And I was like, well, it's kind of a silly thing. The bathroom's like three feet away. And uh, so they got me out of bed, which was incredibly painful because I have you know, lacerations everywhere. My back's broken. My hip's broken. And uh, I go to stand and I just collapse into a heap and just start screaming. And I'm like, oh, this is, this is, this is real. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, but, you know, I slowly, slowly had to, like, accept, accept the pain um, that my body was dealing with. And the, the one thing that I, I realized really quickly um, – and I'm not sure why this happened, but I realized instantly that I, I really couldn't focus on what my limitations were going to be uh, from the accident. I instantly knew that I, I would just have to celebrate success uh, through this. Like this was not a time to be hard on myself because the recovery process is not going to be linear. I was just so incredibly happy to be alive. Um, I just I, There was no reason why I should be alive. And so I figured mm-hmm. I needed to just celebrate that. And, and no matter how small, I just I told myself I needed to find something to celebrate every day. And so some days I would be able to get up and I'd be able to take a few steps and then, I'd, you know, I'd fall asleep for the rest of the day. Um, but throughout all this as well, my body responded really badly to the, the pain meds I was on and, and to the shock. And um, I stopped being able to process food and uh, my whole digestive system shut down. And so I, and I swelled up really badly. I got really, um, you know, this like, it was, and that was probably the most agony I've ever felt. Uh, and just being that vulnerable in a hospital, and I just I, I couldn't do anything myself. Like I, I couldn't reach around and wipe my own ass. Like I was just so reliant yeah. on strangers. And you know, as somebody who's a physical person who's always had a high degree of physical competence, 
And I've also been very self-sufficient to suddenly be that reliant on people and to have to ask for help on a daily basis for the most basic tasks was incredibly humbling to me. Um, It was that I found that to be a real challenge at first. And you know what I hear in your story and everything you're describing is the power of gratitude. And there is a researcher who his name is Dr. Martin Seligman, and he founded or was kind of the the developer of the uh, positive psychology model, which is all rooted in you know for decades and years, hundreds of years, psychology has focused on why people are so screwed up, mm-hmm. right? Whereas positive psychology, his movement is like, let's look at what's working in our life. Let's show gratitude, genuine gratitude for the good things in our life. And that in itself can change the brain's neurochemistry. And it sounds like you had so much gratitude for being alive and and for um, having another chance that that might have led to a a. Uh, quicker recovery. Yeah, no, I, I, I do think that, that that played a very big role. And the other thing that happened to me, and, and I consider myself really fortunate for it, is um, because of my family circumstances, you know, they were able, my, so my, just to give some perspective, my brother lives in Thailand. My father lives in Nigeria. My mother lives in Victoria, British Columbia, which is, you know, a thousand kilometers away from where I was. Um, and my, my girlfriend was, uh, was a medical resident in Calgary, which is another, you know, 800 kilometers away, but they were all able to, to come to me to help look after me when this happened. Um, and just, oh, that's okay. No problem. I can cut this out. No problem. No, sorry about that. Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. I'm getting a work call. <laughs> Actually, can I, can I do a quick timeout? Cause I just want to, yeah, I want to capture your whole story. And I think that. I can't do justice if we only have nine more minutes. So why don't we, okay. if you are willing to uh, record part two with me, yeah, um, okay. because there's so much there, I can. Yes, sir, we, we barely got into it, I But, you know, it's, it's great. Yeah. And, and I think that these kind of podcasts are, um, you know, like to bring out all of the greatness in your story, like it, it takes, it takes time, but it's just, yeah. I don't have a script for it, you know, so I'm yeah. totally into the conversation. And I know yeah. the learners will benefit. So, so we'll just pick up for another couple minutes on what you yeah. were saying, which was um, before the phone went off. What were you saying? Oh, I was, I was saying that uh, my family was able okay, to, yes. to come. Okay, yeah. so let's just start off on that. And then okay. I'll close it off and I'll say, I know that you're pushed for time. Let's consider this part one. Maybe we can record. I'm back in Saudi next week. We can record part two. And, okay. which will probably be another 40 minutes and then we yeah, I can awesome. I can release it in separate episodes but I know okay. that people will benefit. Okay, so keep going with the the family coming to see you. Yeah, so um so the other thing that I was incredibly grateful for was the was my family circumstance. Um so my as I say my my brother lives in in Thailand. My my father lives in Lagos, Nigeria. My mother lives in Victoria, British Columbia, which is a thousand kilometers away from where I was. And my, my girlfriend um, was a medical resident in Calgary, which is another 800 kilometers away. But they were all in a position to be able to, to, to give up their lives, to fly to me. The second half of my accident, they all came together over a number of days. Um, and I was in this orthopedics ward. And the person across um, from me, so in Canada, under our health system, you, you end up sharing, uh, sharing rooms with people. 
And so I was in a room with somebody who um, was hit by a semi truck. While he was, he was a truck driver, he got out of his truck and was hit by a semi. The other person across from me was in a helicopter crash. Yeah, and Jeez. so this is like we were talking about the burly, and I fell off a mountain. Like we were talking about the burliest room in the world. Um, <laughs> the burliest room in the world. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know. So we were we were all survivors, but um, the other two people didn't have any visitors. So these these are major these uh, these are uh, catchment centers these these trauma centers. So people get brought there from hundreds of kilometers or thousands of kilometers away. And they didn't have any visitors, and whether it was due to life circumstances, you know, whether their families couldn't couldn't afford to give up a day of work to come be with them, or couldn't afford to fly to Kamloops and to to, to be with them. And being in a hospital is it's really scary, you know. Like all these people are, you know, they're speaking this medical language which is really foreign. You know, you you're suddenly just dropped into it. Your life is just taking this horrific turn. And, um, and you're, you know, and you're, you're partly medicated, you're dealing with the pain, the trauma, the fear of what's about to happen. So everything's just like, it's really overwhelming. And, um, and they didn't have any visitors, whereas I was surrounded by this incredible community and love and support. And, and I really, really felt that. Um, and so I, you know, I was incredibly grateful to, to be in this, this circumstance that I was, and, you know, having Laura as a doctor, uh, you know, she she was able to advocate for me uh, internally in the hospital as well, which really helps a lot. Yeah. You know, your you know, nurses and doctors are, you know, they're pressed for time. Like everybody in the hospital is, you know, needs their care and attention because everybody's hurting. Yeah. Um, so how can you, you know, stand out a little bit? And by helping me advocate for what I needed, um, you know, really made a big difference and be able to like assess what I was going on and getting that like personal care made a really, really big difference. And I felt incredibly fortunate to be in the circumstance I was to be able to have that opportunity. And then also I think the, the nursing staff and the doctors that, you know, they respond well to people who are trying to help themselves as well. Like anybody naturally, you know, you you get drawn to helping the people who are trying to help themselves Mm -hmm. And because they could tell that I was, you know, I really wanted to get up and move and try to recover as best as possible. And I, and I was trying to be as grateful and thankful to them as possible. I think I was able to get a little bit, you know, potentially a bit more care. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's um, great. And that was one of my questions that I wanted to get into was I could feel in your TED Talk that you, the, the, how genuine you were when you talked about um, the roles of community, love, connection and support and that how that helped you through your difficult moment. And um, I know you're pressed for time. um, So I I would love to be able to record a part two with you because there's so much more that I want to talk to you about. So if you're okay with that, we'll record a part two. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And thanks. um, Before I just want to share, like um, it must be about eight years ago, I was almost killed in an accident in Cambodia and I had my ulnar artery in my left wrist completely severed almost oh bled, bled out on the spot. It was at an international school, actually. Put my hand through a bus window that was backing up into a group of students. Oh, my God. Um, almost bled out, was rushed to a <clears throat> shitty, dirty clinic where <laughs> there was. I needed an orthopedic surgeon. My arm was in a, a tourniquet. Uh, I was probably in the tourniquet for four hours. Um, <laughs> incredible pain. And then all of a sudden, like no surgeons could be found. 
Yeah. I couldn't be medically evacuated to Bangkok uh, because we didn't have our passports. They were being renewed. So it was the waiting game. And then suddenly they had found a retired Scottish orthopedic surgeon who ran a charity that did volunteer surgeries on landmine victims. And, and they rushed me to him and he was able to save my arm and possibly my life. Uh, so those moments, you know, I, I don't want to say it's minor compared to yours. I mean, it's, it's not as traumatic, but it's in that moment where it's really, really scary. And, yeah. you know, you, you go through a lot of different emotions, but what are the chances? And he was usually not in the clinic on that day because he goes yeah, into the rural parts to do surgeries. So you start to wonder, like, is it karma? Is it? something that's meant to be, which puts greater pressure on yourself to understand your own purpose and what you offer the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, kind of interesting. But um, I, yeah, so I guess we'll just, we'll conclude there because there's so much more I want the listeners to hear <laughs> about your story. But um, I really thank you for this, you know, 50 minutes. And um, again, I know you're, you're pressed for time, so I'll just um, contact you by email and, and we'll uh, record part two as soon as possible. I'll probably put out part two, uh, part one um, next week, and then we'll definitely okay. record part two. Excellent. Yeah, no, for sure. Looking forward to it. We get into the meat of things. Yeah, okay. things change quite significantly from there. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Excellent. So everybody, uh, Adam, just stay on. I'm just going to close off this one. But okay. everybody, thanks for listening to part one with Adam Campbell. Um, I, I know you'll come back to listen to part two and, uh, I appreciate you listening to every episode you can. Thanks for listening to the run your life podcast by Andy Bassett. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy, as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.